Hi, I'm Dana Stevens, Slate's movie critic, and I'm here with a Slate spoiler special podcast of Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. Joining me from Slate's DC studio is Dave Weigel, Slate's political reporter. Hi, Dave. Hi, thanks for having me again. Yeah, I'm really glad you could come in to spoil. Have we spoiled anything since World War Z? I don't think we have. I don't think we have, which means the total body count uh, to for all the movies we've spoiled is about... 14 billion, maybe yeah, 13 billion. Like yeah. The planet of the, the, our planet has died twice over just in our <laughs> discussions alone. We spoil Captain Phillips together as well. Okay, just a couple of pirates and then whoever, uh, and then the Rumsfeld movie. So this is probably the most genocidal or xenocidal movie we have, we have covered. Well, it far. depends. Are we, are we including all Iraq war casualties in the body count? Even if you count? include Iraq war casualties, I think this movie kills more human beings than uh, than anything we've seen thus far cuz you know even the the zombies used to be human but uh, so, uh it sounds like I'm spoiling the entire movie but everything I've said is given away in a little animated sequence when the movie begins so I I mean if you you could probably start to spoil the rest of the drama here, because if you are late to the movie, you really needed to hear me say all of humanity dies. Right. Yeah, because essentially the, the, the movie picks up almost the second the last movie left off, which is the moment that this simian flu, this ape virus begins to spread throughout the earth, right? And it's implied at the end of the last movie, I think in a similar way with these kind of globes of the world lighting up in various places, that the ape flu has already started to spread. So as this movie starts, I believe it's 10 years later. It's at some point, the apes seem to say it's 10 years later, which doesn't seem ten, like... 10 winters. Since, 10 uh, winters past, have passed. Yes. Maybe ape winters are different, but it doesn't seem like quite <laughs> enough time for that much devastation to have been visited upon the earth. Essentially, nearly the entire human population has been wiped out. There's no more electricity, right? And, and a few, a small handful of San Franciscans led by Gary Oldman seems to have holed up in this one fortified tower. But otherwise, we're not sure that there's anyone left on Earth except the apes and other animals. Yeah, there's a little bit of on the beach about it because the the humans are trying to reconnect power by running a line from a hydro plant to their little San Francisco hovel, which uh, San Franciscans probably recognize this. It looks like a fancy BART station or something that, that, that humanity is, is is clustered in. Oh, yeah. It's but, kind of a mission style. Yeah, yeah. It's some sort of Spanish building. I should know, having lived out there, but I don't recognize. People should write in and tell us what that building is. And I should say, because I was mostly negative on the movie, I think it looks amazing. It looks as... Every time a, a good, big budget post-apocalyptic movie comes out, we wow over the settings. But this this one's really good. This one has the... The ape civilization, the remnants of the human civilization look really, really gorgeous. And humanity at the beginning is, it seems like 200 people or so, led by Gary Oldman, uh, looking for a way to contact the rest of the world. I think this is what starts the plot going. The apes have, from the first one, have multiplied and created a little civilization in in a gorgeous kind of Disney habitat on a thatched hut village, right? Yeah. Where they're making their language up and and generally joining civilization, women are wearing flowers on their hair. Uh, humanity needs to get past that to build to cr- connect power, and because the apes cut them off, a confl- conflagration is inevitable. That's basically the first half of the movie. Right. So if the first movie, which I think you and I both liked a lot, right? You liked Rise of the Planet of the Apes. It was great. It was, and it was just. A little bit unpredictable, which this one is not. Right. So, right. So the the basic setup of of Rise of the Planet of the Apes was sort of a Frankenstein style setup, right? James Franco, the scientist, kind of creates this this genetic mutant that he doesn't know what to do with, and thereby changes history because apes start to become intelligent and you know to to be able to speak. Although language is still kind of nascent, and even in in this movie, it's it's mainly Caesar, the the anti circus 
mocap character, the leader of the apes, who's who's actually able to use language. Um, so, but if that was kind of a Frankenstein story, this is more of a straightforward. I mean, this is this is essentially a war story, right? This is a story of how, um, well, as in two thousand and one, a space odyssey, when for the first time disruption. Uh, erupts among the apes. And it's it's the story of the division within the ape community that kind of makes their war with the humans more difficult. Yeah, it, it's it's a lot like that. It's, I think it's very allegorical, too, although I, uh, it, it, I immediately thought it was an allegory for Israel and Palestine because that is what's happening in the news, and that's hard to avoid if you've spent any time paying attention to geopolitics because... What happens is that the the humans encounter the apes. There's a hot-headed human who shoots one in self-defense who, for some reason, they keep bringing on every mission, even though he's the most hot-headed and dangerous among them. I think it's because he, he seems to know something about how the Hydro Dam will work. Uh, when the the apes are mostly skeptical of humans, uh, Koba, who's sort of the prime minister, I guess, of the ape civilization who's horribly scarred from his time being experimented on doesn't trust them and Caesar wants to trust them because he remembers his warm relationship with James Franco. He's seen the good side of the humans. Everyone else has just seen the they're trying to kill us and put things into a side. So he starts, uh, he tries to create a truce by going to the human civilization with this great show of force. This really fun scene where the, the lead apes are riding on horses uh, which in my screening, at least, caused people to laugh every time they saw it. I thought it was cool, but... <laughs> I mean, unfortunately, it's kind of given away in the poster and the marketing campaign, because yeah. I feel like this this movie's big ace in the hole, kind of special effects-wise and just sensational image-wise, is apes on horseback, armed apes on horseback. I mean, how can you not be drawn to a movie that, that contains that? But to me, and this is kind of going back to the thatched village and, you know, the image of the, the world that the apes have created in this 10 years, I wanted more ape ethnography, you know, and history of ape culture. I wanted to know, how did these animals master equestrian warfare in yeah. 10 years, even though they've barely mastered language, they don't seem to have technology or electricity themselves. I kind of wanted to get a sense of, you know, if the apes are rebuilding the earth and that, you know, eventually we're going to get to Charlton Heston, Roddy McDowell days, then how are they doing it bit by bit? I wanted a little bit more of that. There's honestly a lot of world building that I think is, is missed out on. And part of this is, as I established in the World War Z podcast, which I guess people can redownload, is I, I really do like post-apocalypse movies and I obsess over how civilization works and how it would break down. And there are references to how nuclear plants are no longer working. That's not actually what would happen if all the humans died and nu- nuclear plants weren't you know, maintainable again. We kind of saw what happened in Japan. If you can't access, if they, if they break down, no one can fix them. It's, it's not good. So civilization looks pretty rebuildable uh, in this movie. But what the apes do is, is sh- have a show force come down and say uh, it, this very fun scene. Caesar points to the human hovel and says, human home, points back to where the apes live, ape home. And t- don't come back. And there's the rest of the movie is kind of similar to developments in the five-part ape series of the 60s and 70s, which is some sympathetic apes going to war internally with the violent apes who basically get their way for most of this movie and precipitate a what we think will be, again, xenocidal war between the humans and the apes. Right. And midway through the movie, we should also say, I mean, this is a a big spoiler and something I certainly won't be able to talk about in the review, but Caesar disappears from the movie for quite some time and you think he's dead, right? I mean, the only reason you think that he can't possibly be dead is that it's too early in the movie for a film this conventional. Maybe in Snowpiercer, a major character gets killed off that soon, but not in Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. So Caesar does come back, but I just feel like every minute Andy Serkis is off screen, the movie kind of dies. 
Yeah, the other ape actors are fine, but a bit a bit obvious. Although I I mentioned that Koba has a bunch of scarring. I did like how the movie gives identifying scars for different ape ape uh, species to to people, so you can tell them to apes, so you can tell them straight. It does so, a really yeah. good job at ape differentiation. I have to say, especially for the non-verbal apes. And I actually, I have to I have to put in a word for some of these motion capture performances. I don't think it's it's all about Andy Serkis. I mean, he is extremely compelling performer, and I love that Caesar character. And largely, I think it's it's affection carried over from the first movie, in which the character was more complex and got more time on screen. But nonetheless, Andy Serkis rules as Caesar. But I also have to say that the woman who plays Maurice, who plays the male orangutan character, is quite incredible too. Because the orangutan barely speaks a word, and yet I feel like he has so much gravitas and presence. Oh, yeah, the the orangutan who ends up is who's I guess if you're Game of Thrones fans, I guess says Hodor. Hodor, I guess it, it reminds me of the the hulking, kindly, not not as smart as everyone else character who's basically morally correct, like Hagrid, almost like yeah. Hagrid in the or Harry Hagrid, Potter yeah. books. I was I was I was forgetting our last giant pop cultural fantasy obsession. Yeah. Uh, so all I think the ape, the ape stuff is generally pretty good, but it's just a bit more. We've seen this before, and we can kind of trace the allegories to other uh, to other histories or or plots. And it's just it's a little bit. I, I wasn't bored per se because there are CGI apes at one point flinging themselves fighting over on steel girders, which do seem to be kind of the go to dramatic fight. Uh, setting, don't they? From Darkman to the Spider-Man movies to any kind of... If you need people to be flung, flung around things, you want to do it on, on steel gird. Right. You want scaffolding on a rooftop. But I have to say that the way... I mean, it's such a cliche to have the hero and the villain slugging it out on a rooftop with scaffolding. And mm-hmm. that's exactly what happens at the end between Caesar and Koba, between, you know, the good ape and the bad ape. But that scene is nonetheless inventive and funny because they're apes. So there's so many things that they can do semi-plausibly that could never happen really even in a superhero fight. And uh, and so I love that. I love the swinging off of chains and kind of scrambling up the side and all the spectators also scrambling around. There's a lot of inventive things happening with just background ape action. And just technically from a, I guess, CGI and costuming and mask and whatever else they're using to create the animal's point of view, this is fantastically well done, I thought. That, that, that's, that part is, although it's it's so distracting, frankly, I forgot that the reason that Caesar disappears for a while and comes back is there is a false flag attack against him, basically, what Alex Jones would call a false flag attack. Coba uh, wants to precipitate a war against the humans, and makes it look like Caesar has been assassinated by a human, which doesn't make a ton of sense because the humans have established they kind of like the guy. Uh, this encourages the rest of the apes, who are kind of on his side anyway. Whenever whenever we see the humans try and negotiate with Caesar, uh, most of them are smacking them around and um, hooting and whatever 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 the rabble rabble sound is for apes, they're doing that. They come along. They this is where the bravura scene we've seen in the trailers of. Apes with guns on horses come in. They put all the humans in pens, and this leads uh, the humans to e- escalate and Gary Oldman to win a power struggle with the w- the one human who had been trying to negotiate with the apes. Uh, win it kind of just by physical force. I mean, it's, there's, again, a scene we've seen many times before where somebody is about to blow off a bomb that will change the, the future. Someone else throw, points a gun at him, and I think maybe even literally says, "I can't let you do that." <laughs> and there's a there's a standoff as the two will powers that could determine whether the world goes to war, stays at peace, are literally you know fighting each other on on steel girders. Right. 
And, but the, at the same time, there's such a sense in all these standoffs among the humans that the humans don't matter. I almost feel like it had to be deliberate. The human characters in this movie are so boring, particularly the family. I guess it's Jason Clark, Carrie Russell, and their son is played by Cody Smith McPhee. And they're essentially just bait, right? I mean, they're constantly shuttling back and forth between the ape and human worlds and getting in various situations of peril that they have to be rescued from. But they're just so boring compared to the animal characters. And it almost seemed to me that that might be some sort of animal rights statement, you know, to make the humans just, just kind of styrofoam. Well, you're you're the game is rigged against the the humans in the first place because the one of the the first scene you see it, it does have this very nice uh, sort of Mobius strip structure where it begins on Caesar's face as he bets, as he's ready for a hunt and ends on his face as he realizes he's going to have to go to war with all of humanity <laughs> and so he goes on a hunt in the beginning and he comes home to see his adorable young uh, ape child be born and the, you know it's hard not to root for the apes when you see this. Uh, the, one of the cutest cre- CGI creations in years, cl- clamoring over his ape f- friends, and then later, you know, meeting the humans. Uh, you're kind of you're rooting for the apes in the first place. I, I did like the choice of Jason Clark as the guy I keep talking about, the um, Malcolm. I forgot his, they're pretty forgettable characters. Uh, Malcolm, who's trying to negotiate things because he usually plays a heavy, doesn't he? I mean, I've seen Jason Clark before. He's kind of got these, you know rigid features and cold eyes and he usually plays a villain who gets blown up somehow here he is there are two of these such characters i mean gary oldman always plays that guy and jason clark plays that guy so even clark seems just kind of depleted and he i think he says at one point it's not that he so wants to work with the apes in the beginning it's that he's his whole family died and he doesn't want to lose human civilization by risking fighting them whereas he's his his struggle is is kind of less emotionally compelling than the ape struggle. Right. I mean, his 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 struggle is essentially just to survive and protect his family. So on that basic, you know, it, it's sort of on that basic bait level, I guess you you care about them surviving. It does seem like that it's being set up at the end that the next movie will be all out destruction, right? The, the 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 when we see the the apes bowing down to Caesar at the end, and he seems more like Caesar. He seems more like a king than the more maybe egalitarian leader that he was back before these struggles. You know that maybe he's going to have to, um, you know, commit some moral acts that he would not have before before that moment. And th- then it might be a movie about power corrupting, which would be interesting. Uh, it's it's usually we associate that with Augustus too. You know that's a, that's a that's a great story, and they've established that these. Uh, these apes are just really fascinating to watch. I was, by happenstance, was in a restaurant the night after I saw this movie where they, one of these hit places that are sprouting out everywhere, everywhere that uh, where white people have moved back into a city and uh, or is, is playing old movies just uh, to amuse bar, bar goers. And I think the fourth Planet of the Apes one was there. And it was strange to watch the old style rubber mask human actor kind of hunching to to right. to demonstrate that they are in fact an ape compared to the CGI in this it just was it was a lot chintzier so i don't know i i was excited for the battle scenes in this and i was it was interesting it was diverting to see how they uh, all the stakes that are part of this plot i mean cuz it's about resources and about blame and whether you can forgive an entire civilization whether you should punish a civilization, a group of people, for the acts of one person. I mean, the uh, again, the the trigger-happy fellow who almost ruins everything twice. I mean, at one point... Um, Koba, you mean? Or no, the man. No, this is Carver. Right. Carver is his name. Um, who, again, is like, I've seen him. I think he was in Oz or something. He always plays a 
hot-tempered uh, Latino guy. Kirk Acevedo he, is the actor. Kirk Acevedo. He, uh, you know, he shoots Dave in the first place. They bring him on the, the Hydro mission, and he smuggles a gun after that was the one condition that the apes would kick them out if they if they broke. Uh, you know, the a lot of all the plot developments are one person makes a bad decision and an entire civilization has to say, well, what should we exterminate them for the the, the risk for the mistakes of that one person? Because he is establishes the last true kind of bigot. Uh, I mean, even even Gary Oldman doesn't. He at one point says the apes are animals after they've attacked. But this guy blames the apes for the flu that killed everybody. Uh which seems legit. I mean, it was the simian flu. There's graffiti in, in, this, in the broken San Francisco that says simian flu. He hates the apes because he thinks they killed, what is it? I think it's one in 500 humans are left on Earth. So it's most of humanity. This will reveal how bad I am at math right now. I didn't get that detail, the one in 500. That's an unusual number, but it seemed way smaller than that. It seemed like all of San Francisco could fit in a, a building. Well, that's another plot point that, or I guess... A point with the whole movie that probably wasn't that much different in the original, which is that the it's not like every ape on the planet has become smart. It's that the apes who are part of the lab in San Francisco was it Genesis, as in Genesis, haha. Right. Genesis uh, <laughs> Labs uh, created the smart ape to, as an Alzheimer's cure, and he turned the, his other apes smart by giving them the the dosage, and their descendants are smart. But it does seem like if one in 500 humans is left on Earth and there is a civilization of apes near San Francisco, if all of humanity teamed up, they might be able to to defeat them. But I assume hubris will take them out. And I said that's why the point is, you know, a it doesn't matter how overwhelming your force is. It's it's if you can't get along with each other, if you're going to try to exterminate everyone who's not like you because it's inconvenient to deal with them or because you blame them for something that happened years ago, you're going to lose because that's that's not the way to run a civilization. Hint, hint, Benjamin Netanyahu. Right. Right. Well, you talk about Israel and Palestine, and I want you to develop that. But I also heard people talking coming out of this about this seeming sort of like a pro-gun control or an anti-gun movie, because it is essentially the possession of a weapon, right? Whenever either a person or an ape takes a weapon into a situation, it devolves very rapidly. That That's a good point, too. I mean, that's that's more sensible. There's a, there is, if you subtract guns from several of the situations in the movie, everything ends pretty well. I mean, if the if Kirk Acevedo's character merely encounters the apes in the beginning when they're when they're when the humans are on that uh recon mission and doesn't shoot them it doesn't it doesn't seem those apes can talk but he what's he do i mean he probably like just runs from them and then they say hey there are humans there and the apes come uh, apes have a meeting and say weird cool all right and civilization keeps going right uh if you yeah the the false flag attack's not possible without a gun i yeah that that's it's, what is a false developed. flag attack? That just means killing someone from your own side and trying to set it up, frame it as if it's the other side. Basically, the false flag as a joke on the and the and the internet is is a tribute to the non joke to- of Alex Jones's theories, which is let, a example would be nine eleven. The government planned nine eleven and let people die so that it could say, "Oh, looks like we have to go to war in Iraq now." Uh, so same thing. That's the Coba. Uh, Made it look like Caesar was killed by a human. Oh, looks like we have to put every single human in a cage right now. Sorry, did we, I, I didn't want to do this, but this attack came out of nowhere. Um, and that, that's why I keep using false flag. It was what I just, I, I, that doesn't tie into my other, <laughs> this is about 
the Israel-Palestine uh, conflict theory, but it just is... A, yeah, there are things been bubbling up in pop culture in the last two years, and I don't think these guys are immune, uh, as they developed the movie, were immune from them. Certainly, watching it month after month, somebody, some situation in America devolved because there was a gun, um, conspiracy theories, and conflicts over small pieces of land, that th- these all seem to be part of the movie. Yeah, I guess I guess I can't help but wish that there had been more concentration again on the ape culture and what those things meant within it. To me, it's so much more interesting the idea of violence erupting from within the culture, despite the ape commandment that we see kind of scratched into a wall near the beginning: "Ape, no kill, ape." <laughs> to be fair, we also have that commandment, and we're not very good at following. <laughs> oh no, absolutely! But that, that scene, that scene, in terms of sort of the holes in the ape ethnography, that just really cracked me up. Like somehow they've they've developed actual writing, but yet not grammar. You know, <laughs> they've they, they're kind of developing. It's fast. Fascinating, this, this ape pigeon language that's maybe a combination of, of English and, and ape, you know, which seems to be a gestural language. Anyway, the part of me that, you know, just wanted to know how, how their educational system evolved kind of took over right there. Well, because we don't, we're not led to believe this is part of the Charlton Heston universe. Maybe we are. Maybe everyone watching this is aware of the original Planet of the Apes in, in 1968. Uh, so you think, how does this get to the point where apes are speaking perfect, almost British English? Uh, and, and and running a kind of nomadic civilization, or not even nomadic, just kind of a desert, primitive, spear-based civilization with no guns in it. Uh, uh, and I guess that you know they they create their pigeon English and then build from there. It's best not to think too hard about it. It is kind of it's just fun to watch this basically caveman, probably what humans had going on in you know, 20,000 BC civilization be built. I think I didn't, I'm not an expert on that, but it felt, you know, the, the, the worship of the, the, the worship of the uh, leader and the cave language they were building and the art they were making for themselves. That, that, that rang, you know, that, I think I saw that in the Werner Herzog movie about cave paintings. That seemed pretty cool. But, but you have to add in equestrian warfare and the alphabet, which were pretty, pretty early adoption. Yeah. <laughs> It does, yeah. They well, if they have this weird head start where they met a bunch of humans who ran civilization, you know, fairly well until destroying themselves. So they ripped off some of that stuff, and the rest of it is is primitive them doing, making it on their own. No, that's all very fascinating. It's just the, it just um, compared to the first one, just the the the, the creation of a Frankenstein monster and the intelligence and something that shouldn't have intelligence. Even that kind of um, very very affecting pathos in that movie about uh, John Lithgow's character who has Alzheimer's and thinks he's getting cured and doesn't. I just, it, this didn't seem to have anything that was as resonant. It felt like it's stuff I'd seen before. Yeah, the human characters were certainly way less resonant. And I think just the general sort of rhythm of the movie, which was just battle, you know, sort of battle, downtime between battle, next battle for a different reason, was not the same as the first movie that really was sort of a coming-of-age movie for, for the Caesar character and really did do some, for, for a blockbuster, some surprisingly deep thinking about the difference between human and animals and, you know, our treatment of animals. Yeah, it... it this has some of the same message, but it's it's not. I don't think it's dealt with as I don't know how you would deal with it uh, exactly. It's not dealt with as much as it could be, though. The idea that humans screwed up civilization, and because they did, they have to barter with a bunch of uh, creatures they used to lord over. That is that seems kind of humiliating, and there's not the. the uh, the only, I mean, there's the Kirkhoff Vado character is angry that the apes created the swine flu or, or carried the swine flu or the, 
I said swine flu. Carry the flu. It's ba- clearly based on the swine flu. It's animal flu that kills most people. Um, he's annoyed at that, but no one's really... It, it's just kind of hanging in the air that it, humans shouldn't have to barter with these th- things they used to have in labs. And I guess the the, the thing I, I thought was most resonant in this was still the... It was the animal rights message. Was at one point Koba, Caesar is telling Koba that humans just need to go set up the dam, get their civilization going again. They need to do their human work. And Koba points to the scars on his body and, and points and says, human work, points to another scar, human work. Just that's what they do. That's all they're capable of. And I was like, oh, it's a little bit after school specially, but that was, I, don't know, I got it. And that, well, then that suits the character of Caesar, who in the first movie is sort of this conflicted rebel, right? I mean, he wants to overthrow humans, but obviously he also feels sort of deeply indebted and, and enmeshed with them. He's so much more complicated in the first movie. I mean, I have to say overall that this movie was a disappointment, but I would still send people to it if they want to see monkeys on horseback. I would do that. And it's also, if you just look at this as the epic of Caesar, it's 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 a good story. I, this, is a, this is a, I guess we're... we're, we're Maybe I am especially uh, geared towards looking at what happens to the humans in a movie. And if you look at them as just fading from the script, as this ape has a hero's journey over the course of a couple movies, leading him to become a tyrant, well, that's going to be pretty good. Um, and, and, and that's... I, uh, I'm i really not going to... Yeah, I don't think I'm going to write a thesis on, on why this reminds me of the way we look at Israel and Palestine. But that's the thing that's so fascinating about that is... Uh, a people who were beaten down and thrown from their into ghettos and thrown from country to country for for centuries, becoming the masters of of, of civilization in the Middle East, becoming people who are accused of you know adopting the tactics that were used against them, you know, accused of uh, of of adopting Gestapo tactics and racism and all these things. It just that's an interesting story and sadly real and poisonous in our reality watching the cartoon cgi version of it is it's pretty diverting it just i think that i i found myself knowing exactly where this plot would go i mean uh once once the key moment depends on whether a hero will pick up the villain as he's dangling over a jagged cliff i think i've seen that before i know that is. <laughs> the old wrist grip right the old wrist grip yes i, I asked um the internet, where that started, and I really want to know because as as a child of the '90s, I remember it from The Lion King. Uh, obviously, you know this, it kind of reverse where Scar and and uh, Mufasa are doing this, and Mufasa dies. But I'm sure there was some movie, you know, some kind of uh, black and white serial that George Lucas liked where this happened, and it's been ripped off ever since. But you know, if you want to see it done with apes, go, go see this movie. I think actually we need to sick our producer, Chris Wade, on a video supercut of that. The history of wrist <laughs> grips in, in, in action movie climaxes. All right, we have to wrap up, Dave, but this was really, really fun. Please come and spoil another blockbuster with me soon, before the world ends. I will, uh, hopefully with a, a little bit less of civilization being destroyed. Thanks a lot, Dave. Thank you. Our producer is Chris Wade. The executive producer of Slate Podcast is Andy Bowers. For Slate.com, I'm Dana Stevens. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. 
The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.